Welcome to The Backbone, but first, a word from our sponsor, Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors too, so you can get paid for your podcast. Anchor is what I use to bring you The Backbone, a journey inside finance at a startup. It connects your podcast seamlessly to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more, making your podcast available wherever your audience chooses to listen. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Welcome to The Backbone, a journey inside finance at a startup. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. On The Backbone, we're obsessed with finance and operations at startups. We take a close look at finance functions within various startup companies by talking to finance leaders that are in there day in and day out. We chat startup finance, metrics, operations, and everything in between. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is David Brennan, Chief Financial Officer at Ecobee, a leader in the Internet of Things industry and the evolution of the helpful home. The company introduced the world's first Wi-Fi thermostat to help millions of consumers live better and save more. Ecobee's mission is to create smarter devices that are beautifully designed, easy to use, and provide savings for families, while being good for our planet. David has over 30 years of experience as a senior executive in many high-growth companies, and before Ecobee, was the general manager at Achievers, and led the company's $110 million U.S. acquisition by Blackhawk Network. He is an experienced finance executive with a proven record of successfully growing companies through venture capital funding, IPOs, mergers, and acquisitions. David is passionate about people behind the work, thinking up the best ways to recruit, engage, and retain top talent, and is currently writing a book titled People First, Results Follow. He earned his Bachelor of Business Administration from the University of Prince Edward Island and is a chartered professional accountant. So without further ado, let's hear from David himself, CFO at Ecobee. Good morning, David. Thanks for coming on The Backbone this morning. Got a lot to cover on this show, so I want to get started right away. You've been part of many technology success stories in, in your career. And, you know, you were the VP finance at Pickstream, a company that sold to Cisco for $369 million. Prior to Ecobee, you were the CFO at Achievers, a company that was acquired by Blackhawk Networks for $110 million. So as you think back on your career as a finance leader within the technology industry, what would you attribute to your success? Well, thank you very much, Shabam, for having me this morning. You know, when uh, you ask me that question, I think about the people. Um, it's the crazy entrepreneurs, the founders that have an idea that had frustration in their life and they wanted to make a change. Um, and so when I think about my success, you know, it's my luck in meeting the right people at the right time who wanted to make a difference, who were passionate about they were, what they were doing and wanted to lead a group of people for change. And when I sort of then expand that um, to the peers that I've had the opportunity to work with who joined the founder on the journey, 
and the people that I was able to attract uh, to work with me to do my part is, is really what has led to the creation of the successful companies that, uh, that I've had the pleasure of being a part of. And each of them was solving a need, solving a product, a problem, and they had great technology. But it all started with a founder, an idea, a visionary who assembled just a great team. And, you know, there's nothing better than being on a team where you support each other and it's a winning effect. Gotcha. And and we'll unpack that a little bit later on, on you know, the importance of, of the team. But maybe if I can drill in one step further to that is what advice would you impart on finance leaders just starting out in the technology industry? So the first thing I'd say is the attributes that are going to make you successful in the technology industry are not necessarily the skills you learned in your accounting classes. When I think about my role and what I've done to be successful within the technology companies I've worked for, I think of, you know, it being a sales role. You know, it's the raising of the money, which is just a sales process. It's understanding how you, you know, give a presentation, how you formulate the financial metrics to meet the needs of what the investors are looking for. It's how you present the company to financial investors. And it's that sort of skill set. It's the storytelling. It's the ability to get up in front of a group of individuals and help the founder tell the financial side of the story. Because the founder will always do the vision and the strategy. But you just can't put a graph up that shows everything up and to the right. You have to tell a story behind it, why it's <laughs> going to happen, right? There's more than numbers, more than numbers involved. And the other thing I'd say is there's no such thing as an overnight success. Right. There's this sort of belief. I'm going to go and start a, you know, join a startup that has five people in it. And in two years, I'm going to be a multimillionaire and life is going to be good. Uh, and that, <laughs> and that, my friends, doesn't happen. Like that's rarefied air. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a journey. And you, I always call it a marathon and you uh, can't sprint a marathon. So you've got to be prepared to invest the time. It's not a technology is not a get rich quick concept. And it's not about the money. It's about the passion and helping, you know, solve a world problem. And none of that they teach you in accounting class, unfortunately. Right, right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Cool. So you touched on this a little bit, but you know, throughout your career, you've raised uh, capital from a lot of prestigious firms like Sequoia and Amazon, uh, just as a couple of examples. And you've also exited various technology companies to the likes of Cisco and Blackhawk Network, like uh, we mentioned. And so from what I could glean, you know, you've raised or exited over $700 million US and in, in deal value. You know, Ecobee's raised 160 million bucks. Uh, Achievers raised 50, exited for one, 110. Pickstream, 23 million raised, exited for 369. You know, I can spend probably an entire episode just talking about your experiences in raising capital and exiting companies. But what I really want to draw upon is your experience working in both software and hardware. And so as a finance leader, what would you say is the biggest difference between software and hardware technology companies? As you were talking about that storytelling aspect, what are some of the key differences that you had to kind of, I guess, switch gears into as you moved from software and, and hardware in your career? The first thing I, I want to say is, you know, about raising money generally, and then I'll get into hardware software. But as you sort of go through, you know, all the rounds of money I've raised and the amount, what I think about is all the times 
that I've heard the word no, right? So, you know, the round that where, you know, we were fortunate enough to uh, get uh, attract money from Sequoia Capital, we had three term sheets in front of us. But to get there, we had 45 meetings. We received 43 no's. Um, so I, I think of the no's right. <laughs> as much as I think of the yeses. And so, you know, as too often in technology, we spend a lot of time and there's a lot of news about the yeses, but people don't hear about the no's. And to get to a yes, you're going to hear a lot of no's. Rarely do you go out to raise money and you get everybody saying yes to you. It just, it just actually doesn't happen. Um, and you have to barrel through the no's. Mm-hmm. When I look at hardware and software, I think you get a lot more no's with hardware because hardware is hard. There's, you know, you're making bigger bets. Uh, there's longer sort of time to market. And, you know, it's not as iterative as you see in software. So with a software company, it's right. amazing with the cloud today, how little money you actually need to raise to get to a beta product, to get a first version out. They talk about, you know, just get 80% done, iterate to the next, you know, iterate, iterate, <laughs> iterate, put new features and functionalities. Yeah. Where with hardware, if you're going to spin a chip, make molds, do QA, like you are into a 12 to 18 month development cycle. I can't imagine having a 80% Ecobee in my home. Exactly. Right. And now, now having said that, um, I did just buy a Tesla and I uh, have now seen a blurring of the lines between hardware and software uh, because it seems like every month I get a new car because I download new software, <laughs> right? So it is actually amazing how it's not about the cup holders anymore. It's, you know, how my odometer looks and the speed and the display and the controls and the air conditioning, they change it like, and they can change it with software download. Right. But with an Ecobee, right? Like when we put a new thermostat out, it has to work. It has to work from day one. And we can add more features and functionality to it from a software perspective. But the look and the feel of the product, the core, you know, chips and CPU and, you know, radio that's inside of it, speakers and microphones, you can't swap those out. And it takes Mm -hmm. time to put that. So when you're raising money, you're asking investors to make a bigger check, write a bigger check for a bigger bet. Um, Whereas software... You have the luxury of, you know, being able to fail uh, or, you know, get get something out to market to show investors, hey, I'm getting traction, right? right. <laughs> Whereas hardware, I can't just, you know, develop, you know, produce 100 thermostats, go sell them and say, oh, it works. Now give me, you know, $20 million to do a million run uh, version of that thermostat. Mm-hmm. So, very different. Yeah, yeah. And and one thing I've always wondered about for, for hardware and, and curious to get your perspective, especially from the finance perspective, is, you know, you can always make a hardware product with the latest and greatest chipsets or, or the latest and greatest uh, sensors. And, and you can always pack in uh, into the product the latest and greatest. But eventually like it's always iterating from the the components themselves so where do you draw the line in terms of okay well for this version that we're setting out we're going to spec it this way 
And even while we're in development, if the specs of those individual components, there are newer versions, like, because that would impact your, your costing and your pricing. And so how do you think about that? Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, work back and forth with product and, and the uh, development and engineering team. But just from a finance perspective, what's what's your thought process there? You know, it, it, it's always a negotiation, it seems like from that perspective. And, you know, I've noticed that the great product managers are fantastic at putting a line in the sand and saying, we're going to be focused. We're going to be, we're, we're picking the chipset, we're picking the CPU, and we're going to go to market with this product. And, you know, with technology and Moore's law, you can do a lot, um, you know, to make sure that you're sort of overpowering your hardware and which allows you to give, you know, put more memory into, in a device with the knowledge that you're going to be downloading new features and new functionality. Uh, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, great uh, hardware engineers today are putting the best pieces of device uh, components in that are overpowered or over-memoried to what the current needs of the device is, knowing that you're going to expand it. I mean, that's one of, I mean, we compete with Nest, um, and that's one of our key differentiators you know, we mm-hmm. uh, power off of the home. So we have what we call a C-wire, not to get too technical, uh, which gives us uh, full power into the thermostat. That allows us to run a very large CPU, and that allows us to put things like Alexa right inside of our device. So you can have a speaker, wow. a microphone, and actually talk to your thermostat. Nest, on the other hand, uses a battery. So they can never actually put the Google Assistant into their device because the battery just won't support the size of a CPU. You need to run that kind of technology. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's our sort of key differentiator. And that's why I think we're going to be successful in the connected home space. And I do remember this when, so I have a Ecobee installed at home and I absolutely love it. And so, you know, when I was going through the process of selecting which thermostat to, to put in there, I went through this, you know, the C wire, this kind of, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. And, uh, and I couldn't install a nest in my home because it wasn't compatible, but the Ecobee was. And so anyways, I know a lot about Ecobee just because having used it and, and it's a part of my home and, but Ecobee has become a global brand in home automation. Maybe for those not as familiar with Ecobee, uh, what it's all about. Can you tell us a bit about Ecobee? Absolutely. Stuart Lombard uh, was one of the founders and our current CEO started, uh, the company Company, uh, about 10 years ago and he had a vision of creating a connected thermostat uh, that would connect uh, to your mobile device to your computer and it would allow you to change the temperature and not physically be in the home and allow the thermostat to be programmable in a much more simpler way than you know the old-fashioned we call them you know the dumb on off thermostats. (laughs) The theory being is, you know, when you think back, there's a lot, and still today, a lot of people are either heating or cooling their house 24 seven, where they're not there. They go on vacation and they don't adjust the thermostat. They're not in their home during the day. And so for Stuart and the team, it was about energy saving and, you know, proving to, to, 
um, consumers that, you know, if you first of all care about your energy bill and want it lowered, if you care about the environment and our planet and the largest use of energy is in the home, uh, is the HVAC system, you can do good for the planet and your pocketbook by installing an Ecobee thermostat um, that's connected. And so, you know, over the years, they've developed that. And, and last year, we came out with a, we call the E4, uh, which is a voice-enabled uh, thermostat. So it has a full Alexa capabilities inside of it. Uh, so you can now talk to your thermostat. Uh, and Very cool. You can play music through your thermostat. It'll do everything uh, that an Alexa-enabled device uh, produces can do today. And that's a journey for us onto what we call the connected home. So we think the home is going to be sort of an area where three main pillars will be uh, essential. So far field voice is one of those pillars where you'll want to be able to talk to your home. So getting up in the morning, not going to your, you know, your phone to hit buttons to see what the weather is, rather using your voice to connect to the outside world, mm -hmm. what the weather is, or to turn the radio on, or, you know, change your temperature in your home. The second thing is sensors, putting sensors in your home. We just came up with our second product uh, a couple months ago, uh, Wi-Fi enabled light switch, which again has a speaker and a microphone, so you can turn lights on and off with your voice. And the thermostat and the light switch are connected, so you know. Once the thermostat knows you're not home because it has motion and occupancy detection, uh, you can then have your lights turn off as well. So there's no concept anymore hmm. of forgetting to turn off your lights. And then the, the, the final pillar is, you know, using machine learning and AI to better understand your habits and understand that, oh, you actually commit, come home most days around 6, 6.30 in the evening. Well, it's nice to come home to a home that's lit, to a home that's at the temperature to which you want. It's, it's those sort of three areas that we're focusing on uh, to make comfort in the home. And, uh, you know, we have a product roadmap that will see us delivering more products into your home um, to make it a comfortable space where you don't have to worry and you can use your voice and the sensors in the room to get to know you and it all just will work seamlessly. It's kind of interesting, right? Because if you think about, you know, 10 years ago, like you mentioned, when, when Stu had started the company, just to think about the thermostat being uh, this place that would become a hub uh, in the home. And one thing about voice is like, you know, I still feel weird talking to my phone in public, uh, like using the voice assistant on my phone to ask it to do things. But at home, it feels more natural because at home, I'm, I'm just, you know, speaking to, to my Google Home or my Amazon Alexa um, uh, to do that. So th that's a very, very interesting concept and really excited about, uh, you know, the pillars that, that you described. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting as we talk to our grandchildren and we'll talk about this thing called typing. They'll go, what's that? Well, there was this thing called the curry board <laughs> and we used to use our fingers and it's like, really? Wow. Do you have any of those old devices at home that I can see, dad or grandpa? <laughs> like, 
Exactly, exactly. It's crazy the the pace of uh, innovation and, and change. So switching gears now a little bit, one thing that really stood out to me about your background while I was doing research is your passion about people. And you started talking about this uh, when you said, uh, you know, what are what are some of the things that you've noticed throughout your career path? One thing I, that stood out to me again was your LinkedIn head, headline doesn't talk about finance at all. It says passionate about growing people and organizations. You're also writing a book people first, results follow. This isn't something that I would say is common amongst finance leaders. So talk to me about your passion towards people and their role in the organization. So I am a a proud CPA. I spent nine years as an auditor. And the first nine years of my career, it was all about results. It was all about making sure that the financial statements reflected accurately the financial position of a company. Through that journey, And through all of the people and companies I've worked for, I came to the realization that accountants have really uh, screwed things up quite nicely because we created these things called companies. And these companies are run based upon annual financial statements, quarterly financial statements, and monthly financial statements. And that is a very results-orientated model in allows us who enjoy debits and credits to go to bed every night and sleep like babies. The problem is all of those results are created by these things called people and people work hourly and daily. And what we have failed to realize is managers are responsible for being the bridge and marrying this hourly and daily activity to quarterly results, annual results, because for me, I actually cannot change the quarterly results of Ecobee. I need the people to go to work today and to understand Mm -hmm. what they need to do so we can have those results. And so I think it's, it's, you know, making sure that we have the right people who are motivated in the right seats on the bus to make sure that we're producing the results. And if we try to produce results without focusing on the people, I think it's completely backwards. And I spent a big part of my career in backwards mode, as I call it. Gotcha. And so uh, talk to me specifically about like the importance of uh, people as you scale an organization. You know, when you are uh, a smaller, earlier stage company, let's say, less than 20 people, you know, each individual person that you bring on, um, it's very important as always to make sure that they fit with the culture and, and things like this. Um, it's a lot easier to, well, hiring's not easy, but it's relatively easy to, to do that, make sure that uh, they're a fit with the culture at the earlier stage than at the later stage when, you know, you are a uh, hundred plus or 150 plus organization. And so how important is the people aspect Uh, as you scale organizations. You said the right word, right? Culture. Um, And I'm big on culture, values, and mission. Um, And people join organizations and leave managers traditionally. I mean, that's sort of an unwritten rule. So you need to make sure that Mm -hmm. you have managers in your organization that really are completely aligned to the company's mission, the values, and understand where the company has come from. What I see a lot is in the early days, it's easy, right? Because the founder is traditionally a passionate individual, really focused on 
you know, what they're trying to accomplish. They touch everybody every day because when you're 5, 10, 15 people, you're crammed in a small office and the founder is visible. Then as you grow, you add this concept of a management layer. Right. Oh, now we have 25 people. Now we have to have three managers and we need seven people reporting to each manager. We hire this thing called a manager. Now the employee Mm -hmm. is sitting there going, oh, I'm now one step further from the passion, the enthusiasm, and the vision. And that's really important to make sure that as you add people and naturally add layers to an organization, that the founder ensures that the vision and the passion and the culture is explicit every day and that the managers are walking the talk and it's more than words on a wall. Um, And so I think as you scale... It's so critical to hire managers. And as you get to 100 people, I mean, that's sort of the worst part of an organization when you get to 101 because now you don't know everybody's name. People have to get security passes because you don't know if someone's here on an interview or they're actually an employee. And and for some, and I, and I know employees who quit when it hits like 75, 100 people. They want to work in small organizations and they don't want to be part of a large company. Right, they they like the friendly small atmosphere. Yeah, for sure, it's it's super important, and and you know, it, it's not something that gets a lot of attention within the the, the finance lens. So I'm I'm really glad that uh, we were able to chat about this. Uh, and and last question before we move into our quick fire round. Uh, in your opinion, what is the importance of the finance function at a technology company? Ah, oh, the most important thing you can not be is do not be a historian. <laughs> it's important. You have to have the historical financial statements. You need to know that the monthly, you know, financial statements are in accordance with GAAP and all of that fun stuff. But you need to make sure that you're focusing on key metrics, insights, and drivers of the business and providing that added value. Um, you know, and it, I always say to people, it's the art of numbers. Don't ever tell me one number. $100 million of sales means nothing nothing to me. That's an absolute number. And I call it the art of numbers, where it has to be the absolute, relative, mm-hmm. and trend, right? So put everything into that perspective. That will then allow people to make business decisions because $100 million of sales sounds impressive until you find out that last year it was $200 million of the sales. <laughs> right, right. right? Like it's, so, I mean, that's an extreme example, but I, I too often see financial professionals, especially in startups, worrying about the monthly financial statements and presenting them in a very happy form. But if you're running a SaaS business, for example, your gap financial statements are almost irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the customer acquisition cost. It's the churn. It's how much money do you have in the bank? What's your runway? Um, you know, when you start talking about hardware companies, you know, runway and what your operating expenses is only one part of the puzzle. You know, what's your working capital requirements? How much capital do you need to run the, uh, you know, the busy season over Black Friday and Christmas? How much inventory do you need? When do you need it? Uh, what's your right. return on the inventory? Um, you know, how much inventory is on hand at any given time, how much is on the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it goes well beyond being a historian on gap financial statements. 100%. What I'd like to do now is jump into our quick fire round. And so the way this works is I'll ask you a question and you'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay, let's do it. 
All right, let's do it. So what's your go-to online resource for all things startup finance related? Okay, I like David Scock, which is, uh, he's got a great blog for entrepreneurs.com, TechCrunch, BetaKit, but I warn people not to read too many of this, these blogs and uh, news sites, because unlike the regular media, they primarily tell the good news, who's getting funded, who's getting acquired. <laughs> and if you go to the regular right. media, you hear bad news all the time. You just hear who's got shot, who's, you know, going under. Yep. Done. That's good. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You hear about all the yeses as we talked yes. about and, and not so much yes. the no's. Exactly. <laughs> What, what what's your favorite productivity hack? Oh, audiobooks. I listen to audiobooks uh, on the elliptical every morning. Uh, I think it's a wonderful way to expand yourself, and uh, I can't encourage more people to read as much as you can. I wish wish I had read more earlier on in my career. Awesome, that's very interesting. And what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? I recognize someone. Send a thank you email. Oh, nice, very cool. Yeah. Somebody somewhere has done something great today for me. Importantly, I thank them, whether it's via email, voicemail, or in person. Gotcha. Uh, what's one tech jargon that uh, makes you cringe? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> the word pivot. The word, the word pivot. pivot. Your business plan will change, uh, guaranteed. Uh, that's why investors invest in smart people, and they don't necessarily invest in business plans or products. Pivot is part mm-hmm. of uh, adjusting your business strategy. It's part of growing a successful business. And often we use pivot as a bad word. Right. Uh, and what's the best advice you've received in your career so far? You can't do it alone. Hmm. There's no, there's nobody who's built a successful company, a successful career by themselves. And while it might appear that, you know, Bill Gates or Richard Branson or Elon Musk uh, are incredibly smart and intelligent people and Steve Jobs, they did it with a team. Right. A bunch of people came behind them. So... Uh, I would encourage any financial professional to uh, don't fool themselves. You can't do it alone. Build a great team. Right, right. And as your uh, your book title suggests, you know, people first, results will follow. It's uh, is really, I think, encapsulates a, a lot of what we talked about. So thanks so much, David. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting. Uh, I know we can go on and on and, and you know, your your career uh, about all of the, the learnings and experiences. We've got to do a follow-up uh, episode or something because there's still so many questions that I, I could ask, but in the interests of time, I uh, wanted to keep this in a digestible format for for the audience it's been a, a, a great chat and I've, I've learned a lot uh chatting with you uh about your experiences from working in hardware software thinking through the challenges in, in each learning about uh, why why people matter so much and why people within the finance organization should be thinking about people as they scale organizations so it's been a fun chat thank you very much Saban. really enjoyed it awesome take care bye now